Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my saccharine co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Oleg Fomenko. Oleg is the co-founder of Sweatcoin, which has just been confirmed as the fastest growing health and fitness app in history. We chat about their recent Series A from US-based VCs, the difficulties for a new company facing hyperscale, and how they're hacking human psychology to make us healthier. Oleg is a true blue sky thinker. We get into a range of topics, including human evolutionary biases and their ethical application in tech, the amazing potential of the blockchain, why he goes on one silent retreat a year, and what crashing a paraglider into the only tree for miles taught him about life. So without further ado, we bring you Oleg Fomenko. Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast. Uh, we are joined today by Oleg Fomenko, founder of Sweatcoin. Um, big day for you today. I saw that the number of steps on your platform just tipped 800 billion steps, which is massive. I probably, I probably pay more attention to it than you do, actually. Thank you. But um, I did some calculations, and a nice fact for you is that is almost a distance between the Earth and Jupiter, the number of steps that you guys have recorded now, which is enormous. I'd like to say that I've contributed 1.2 million of those steps. Yeah, I've contributed three, but I seem to be being gifted a lot of free sweat coin, which we'll be talking about later. Thank you, guys. But yeah, before before uh, we get into that, we'd love to go into your background because you've had a really interesting background. You've been a long-standing friend of AIN uh, and Zavs, who I gather you met at a wedding once upon a yonder. He regales fun stories of singing something um, and dancing a lot. I have um, no recollection of that. <laughs> <laughs> Deny uh, it all. Just to start with, because I guess you uh, you didn't grow up in the UK, you grew up in Russia. Yeah. Um, and how long were you there for, and, and what did your education in that look like? So before we launch into that, can I just uh, sort of insert one small correction? So this is actually one-third of co-founding team of Sweatcoin. Yep. So uh, it's myself, Oleg Fomenko, and then I have two other co-founders, Anton Derdatka and uh, Igor Khmerov. So... You know, because I was probably the first person for you guys that mm. you know, started speaking of Sweatcoin. You feel like I'm the founder, but there is actually a whole team uh, right now approaching 25 people. So we've been growing rather rapidly. But this is just to make sure that audience also knows that, you know, it's actually massive team effort and there's not one guy that mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. can get us. Am I right in thinking as well that, and, and I read this in an email that was sent around, that you have become the fastest growing health app in history yes the stats of our lead investor clearly indicate that you know nobody in the health and fitness sector has ever reached uh, the levels of our growth before the audience of one out is really impressive when they realize it's something that came about on the back of a business that was already ticking along pretty well i mean to get a million users for bloom before was a hell of an achievement as well so with all of that stage set and people hopefully going yeah. to find out more yeah, so, so your journey from growing up in Russia, um, was yeah. that back in the days of the sort of USSR, as it were? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was born in uh, the USSR in the family of uh, uh, military engineers. Uh, they were not military per kind of uh, because they wanted to be, but because actually the best engineering talent was always hired uh, at the times of Cold War into military applications. 
So my mother was uh, an engineer in what was called survival complexes, which is kind of anything that uh, basically shoots stuff out of the sky because apparently that's how you survive in the fight. Mm. You know, kind of a bit of trivia for you. <laughs> and my father was a test pilot on choppers. And uh, so I grew up surrounded by kind of math, physics, and, uh, you know, people talking a lot about flying. And uh, uh, most of my schoolmates uh, went into either physics, math, or development, coding, software development. And uh, I was supposed to be doing the same, but uh, when I was finishing my education, Soviet Union started crumbling, and I saw what's happening with the engineers uh, when the whole country is falling apart. And uh, I've decided that uh, I wanted to take lower risk approach and focused on languages and uh, uh, graduated uh, from the university with diploma in uh, psychology and sociology of management. Wow, I didn't realize that. And um, then I went and started working in marketing for Western companies because marketing and sales were the only functions that they had in the Soviet Union or Russia back then. They were literally just sending product in and they were selling it and you know, kind of, you could either market it or you could sell it. And, uh, you know, that's what I started doing. And at the first possible opportunity, I've uh, departed from uh, Russia and uh, went and lived in Austria for five years working for uh, Coca Cola. Um, and uh, after that, I moved over to London. So this has been already since I've been here since 2000. And uh, I joined Boston Consulting Group. Uh, and uh, done a few years with them and then realized that I actually was a lot more entrepreneurial than uh, I thought. The funny thing about me and entrepreneurship is that when I was growing up in Russia, the word entrepreneur would be synonymous with someone that will end up in jail <laughs> sooner or later. And uh, definitely going to jail wasn't part of my plan. So kind of entrepreneurship wasn't really something that uh, um, I kind of kept in my sights. And this is something that only emerged when I came over to um, to the UK and I realized how structured and, you know, very much kind of focused on certain kind of, um, how do we call it, templated successes we are. And uh, I started thinking that there are so many wonderful things that we could possibly do with our time and uh, with our energy. And, um, you know, kind of I started toying with it, but. Uh, without having British citizenship, I found it was very, very difficult to actually start the business and, uh, you know, for example, open an account for a business was very complicated when you don't have British passport. So I had to uh, kind of put a delay on that plan and um, get my British nationality, which I got in 2008 and virtually you know, within a few months, I started my kind of first business, which was uh, Bloom FM Music Streaming Service. Did that start in 2008? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I, I founded it. It's not like it started, but I founded it in 2008, and it took a long time to raise funding to get, you know, to get us going, because legal music still remains a kind of an amazing challenge despite Spotify announcing the IPO, they, you know, kind of spectacularly unprofitable. It's happening soon, the IPO, isn't it? Yeah. 
yeah it'd be really interesting to see what happens because clearly they're the dominant force in terms of streaming music um i don't know many people who haven't got a spotify premium um but as you say their their ability to take that to monetization is pretty difficult yeah i know it's you know kind of the biggest issue and if you look through their prospectus still remains that more than 70 percent of uh, all of their gross takings go to music industry Imagine that you run Google where 70% of all revenues that come in go to someone else. And something we always, Zav and I always pick up on when we look at a pitch deck is, is the revenue your own or are you getting small percentage of it? And a lot of people push in the gross revenue and say, oh, I'm turning a million pounds turnover every year. And then you look in, in more detail and you find out they're only making 100 grand. Yeah. And actually, they never will make more than 100 grand unless they can squeeze some more margins by virtue of size. But it's quite easy for them to then erode that play by somebody else coming in who's willing to offer them uh, a cheaper commission rate and then you start having leakage so it's yeah it's super difficult you did do a hell of a job with bloom you got to a million users i yeah, 1.3 million users and only in the uk yeah no it's it it was going now with the benefit of hindsight i would say that you know kind of i am lucky that uh, you know what happened uh, and uh, bloom perished because uh, now we have sweatcoin and uh, you know kind of it's uh, it's a lot more interesting and uh, i think our potentiality of sweatcoin is almost unlimited while with bloom this whole kind of challenge of royalties and how do you ever make this profitable has always been looming uh, on the horizon but uh, yeah, we got to 1.3 million users on the back of very, very kind of simple proposition that uh, you could actually subscribe to music legally on your mobile for one pound a month as opposed to 10 pounds a month. I guess the model there was a matter of addressing efficiencies and a bit more, um, a bit more control over your usage. So it was no, it a was, bit more dynamic. It, it was segmentation, really. I mean, if you think about it, uh, um, especially in early days of a lot of products, what you end up having is you need to segment things and you need to offer kind of entry-level product. And typically, typically, you end up having three tiers. I mean, think of broadband. It's only now that we have arrived, you know, it's binary. You either have broadband or you don't have a broadband. Um, but for a very, very long time, there were tiers and you, you know, you could pay very little and then you had little usage and then you were going level up or you had all you can eat. The funny thing that with music, this still is not happening. And, um, you know, 120 quid a year does remain quite a lot of money for a lot of people to spend, especially if you're a student. So that's exactly the kind of the demographic and the use case that we went uh, after. So if you remember 2008, it's rampant piracy, you know, people are concerned about kind of doing the right thing. But when they're confronted with 10 quid a month, mm. most of them bulk. And, um, you know, kind of we said, you know, here is a tiered product. You can start as little as one pound a month. And that almost kind of became it. It's a no brainer. How can you yeah, it's like with it's one pound a, a month? Coffee. Mm. So that started really rolling and uh, kind of we had uh, a phenomenal success, especially when, when we talk about young people and students. And, uh, you know, but it's very, very expensive to run legal music service. Did it create a meaningful gateway of upsell? Was, like, was it a case of a lot of people ended up going up to a, a higher, more premium package and actually all they needed was to just take that first step into the one pound a month and then they'd naturally get used to paying and then once you 
are comfortable paying for music they then upgrade or was it actually most people did just want a one pound a month you know we didn't have a long enough history if you look through kind of spotify's even published numbers it does take a long time and shed loads of a b testing and optimizations and uh, kind of product work to really fine-tune your upsell funnel mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. of course we had the highest number on uh, one pound and i don't remember the the exact kind of funnel uh, dimensions how it was uh, going but uh, i can tell you that we had quite a lot of people who were on mid-tier and on top tier and our top tier was also um, you could uh, you could pay 13 pounds on the mobile because apple charges 30 percent and uh, we had people who preferred that because uh, you know spotify then and still now remains uh, that it's impossible to subscribe on uh, on your mobile so quite a lot of people preferred that top tier because they could just pay out of their uh, kind of phone as opposed to go on the web and uh, pay there did you find that a fun experience was it fun sort of locking horns with the music industry in terms of the lifestyle around it or was it more just a, a, a sort of tech endeavor yeah um <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, um, was it fun? Yes, uh, a lot of times. Uh, was it fun to negotiate with the music industry? Not at all. This mm. is this would be the last thing that I would ever recommend to anyone to undertake. This um, is what Anthony Rose said. We had Anthony Rose on from Seed Legals and mm. in a previous existence. He'd... Um, Kazar. He, it was Kazar, yeah. And yeah. his experience of music executive, them trying to sue him for a... A, was it a billion dollars? A billion dollars. Yeah. No, thankfully we, we avoided that, but I can tell you that it was just endless. And we are sitting here in uh, kind of central London, and I spend countless times in the building next door with uh, uh, with companies because all of the labels are here. Warner, uh, Sony is right here. Universal is just further down the road, and. Uh, number of meetings that we had to go through and number of conversations we had to have in order to secure deals uh, has just been absolutely phenomenal and uh, it was multiple years that it took in in order to secure a 30 plus million tracks catalog so it's it's a very 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 high cost of entry yeah, which is so difficult for startups operating at anything that makes it drag out contract lengths and stuff like that. That's why you don't see an awful lot of uh, kind of real massive innovation. Uh, there are a lot of people, and I've been approached for years after Bloom by people who wanted to do something in the music. And, uh, you know, you really need to raise quite a lot of money to sustain yourself, to build the product and sustain you through this negotiation cycle. Or you do what Kazar did and, you know, plenty of others that, you know, kind of try to go through user-generated content or kind of uh, acquire content illegally and mm-hmm. then try to kind of whiten themselves out through um, negotiations. But that is also a very, very tricky process as evidenced by the fact that, you know, the two biggest players are still Apple and Spotify that didn't go down that path. They have the ability to innovate themselves. I've got a friend who works at Tidal. Their play is just ring-fencing their own content and hoping you care enough about it to, to pay for it, I guess. Difficult, you know, kind of music business is, uh, um, you know, in my experience, uh, it's, you know, you need to have a complete catalogue. So labels uh, hold quite a lot of keys to your success. That's one. 
the product needs to be absolutely astonishing because uh, you know kind of right now um, you know it probably is a lot more level playing field but back then legal products were so suboptimal in comparison to piracy it was unbelievable because you could just play you know get an app you know uh, rip YouTube and it would be on your phone faster than um, you know kind of going through any legal channel mm. and people are just saying why do you want me to pay when it's actually good quality and free faster and you know it's a big 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 challenge that we had to overcome I mean you've mentioned a lot of obstacles that that you seem to have overcome quite well but the actual reason why bloom didn't work out was something that would you'd probably say was totally unforeseen yeah no it's you know that if you're an entrepreneur you know that uh, uh, there are this known unknowns and you know kind of you, you manage them or you try to mitigate them and you think about those risks but to be honest it's unknown unknowns that uh, are the scariest and that was specifically the sort of unknown unknown you know there was uh, there were these sanctions there was a kind of complete shift in the relationship between our countries and uh, my funding was from Russia mm. and uh, you know all of a sudden it became improbable for my investor to continue funding the business uh, in uh, in the UK and they basically put it on ice mm. and they had to fire 30 it. people literally on the spot because uh, uh, I was a director of the business, and uh, there is such thing as trading insolvent in the UK, which uh, basically precludes you from kind of trying to salvage the business uh, when you know full well that you don't have enough uh, money to pay salary. So in the US, for example, some businesses try to go through it because they don't have the same uh, kind of rule or the same law. Here, it's very, very difficult to try to salvage uh, the unknown unknown like that. And, and given the, the work, you put in and all the success that you'd had with it I imagine that must have been well, actually I can't imagine how hard that must have been for it to to end up that way but I guess it's it's from there that the story leads to, to Sweatcoin and yep. w- was Sweatcoin the pleasant thing that pulled you out of I mean did, did you go into a, a gloom in the post bloom era you should ask my wife um, right. you know Ed uh, um, Maria, met she's my wife fantastic yeah you know I can uh, I can be all macho here but uh, it was pretty difficult first of all you know you put it's from 100 miles per hour to zero in a very very short period of time that takes some adjustment to do then you're firing people and then you're realizing that uh, you actually would need as a director to spend months and it turned out to be two years burying the child that you were raising for quite a long time because it's your fiducial duty to make Mm -hmm. sure that you kind of sort everything out and uh, then you are dealing with administrators and answering all those questions and uh, you know effectively trying to keep yourself out of uh, a pickle because in uh, some circumstances directors might become financially responsible for the affairs of the company that's been closed so it's not a very positive and happy place. Uh, did, did it don't does that build a, a hell of a lot of resilience that you've carried forward for you, or is it just a crappy experience? Do you think? You know, I think, to be honest, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, you can say that yes, that builds resilience. But I think that uh, everything and in life kind of prepares you for things. And if someone thinks 
that they cannot handle something, just wait for that to happen and you'd be totally surprised. I think that everyone is perfectly capable of handling situations like that. They just didn't have a luck or unfortunate luck to be there. But, uh, you know, you just carry on because, you know, what else can you do? Uh, you know, in my case, I had a young family and uh, kind of had a business that I was a director of and I had duty to the business and to my family to uh, carry on. That just makes you, you know, I suppose, uh, focused on uh, making sure that uh, your steps are very, very deliberate and uh, effective. So, um, as you rightly said, Oli, uh, that led um, through kind of, as always, serendipity uh, to a conversation with Anton, my co-founder. How did you meet Anton? I know Anton for longer than I care to admit. Um, <laughs> we met in my first ever job in uh, Russia uh, more than 20 years ago. And uh, we kind of stayed loosely in touch, you know, kind of, you know, we kind of remain acquaintances. And then uh, he came over to the UK as well. Um, I came and joined BCG. He came to study at LBS. We kind of um, also remained uh, loosely in touch. Uh, but we rekindled our friendship in year, I think, 2000 or 2006 I was pulling together a team of friends to climb uh, Kilimanjaro with me and I gathered a group of 12 and Anton was uh, one of them and uh, when we got to the summit um, my mom had a bit of a kind of health scare uh, pretty serious one actually and uh, it was me my brother and Anton that uh, ended up uh, getting her from the summit to the nearest hospital at the foot of the mountain in four hours. That was one of the fastest ever descents of Kilimanjaro because we literally run. One person was carrying her, two others were kind of uh, running either behind or in front and then when one is exhausted, that one God. picks up, then you kind of take a breather, you catch up with them and you know so on and so forth. So. Um, you know, when somebody helps you to rescue your mom, that sort of brings you quite close, at least, you know, from my side. Uh, I was absolutely eternally grateful. And we remained in uh, kind of very, very good uh, sort of contact ever since. And we're kind of when he was in London, we were uh, uh, meeting up because by then he moved over to Moscow. And uh, then he just kind of mentioned his idea because he has experience in um, sport in sport consulting as well as uh, uh, sport apparel. So he was uh, marketing director of Reebok in Russia for a number of years. And he's done a lot of sports consulting when he was with AT Kearney. So he uh, was dreaming and thinking about something that would make people more kind of engaged with sport and more physically active. Uh, he was thinking of it as a loyalty scheme. And after death of Bloom, I was very much into uh, blockchain and Bitcoin because ever since sort of 2011, when I first encountered it, I was totally fascinated with technology and uh, just the way of thinking about technology that uh, Bitcoin introduced into my life. And while it didn't really fit what we did at Bloom, that was something that was sitting in the back of my mind. So when uh, kind of bloom perished and I had to spend quite a bit of time um, kind of on wrapping things up. I started digging into blockchain 
and Bitcoin and uh, kind of thinking what my next move is going to be. So when we met, Anton was talking kind of sport and fitness and health. And I was talking blockchain and went for a run. I lived in Richmond back then. And, uh, you know, despite us climbing Kilimanjaro and subsequently I climbed shed loads of other mountains. Um, and I was fit as a fiddle. At that time in 2014, I could actually barely do 5K. Um, and I'm not talking even at a decent pace. I'm talking about kind of just doing it running 5k <laughs> why just because i saw you in that time and you you looked in good health no absolutely and you know i think that this is you know this is where you know you don't need to be extremely overweight or obese to kind of be unfit i uh, i looked fit but actually kind of giving you know kind of uh, running at okay pace which was sort of case with anton I realized that, you know, I completely let myself go, not in the, not that I couldn't move, but I definitely wasn't fit and mm. my breathing wasn't there and my heart wasn't coping extremely well. So basically on kilometer three, I needed him to take a breather. And I thought, hang on a second, he's actually got a point that, um, you know, can, if I, after only probably two years of not spending sufficient amount of time kind of preparing for mountains, doing my expeditions, going to gym, if I am in this state, then God, you know, kind of what about other people? And I thought that I had self kind of motivation and energy and drive and, you know, kind of a way of uh, kind of staying fit. And I failed. So I really started thinking what was happening and why this is going on. And we very quickly through our conversations realized that there is a kind of universal problem that is applied to applicable to 100% of people. And the problem is nature doesn't want you to move. Nature didn't build you to move. Nature build you capable of moving, but nature wants you to preserve energy. Energy at the times when we were built or when we were, you know, kind of designed, uh, energy was extremely hard to come by. That would be like mm. squandering money around when you're walking on the street. That is absolutely senseless. So you were getting a prey or kind of getting some food. You were eating it and then you were preserving that energy at least until next opportunity to get that food when that mammoth appeared again so that you had another stock of meat. You wouldn't run around, sort of jump from tree to tree and uh, kind Just of... Just for the sake energy. of, yeah. No, because that would mean that your tribe will probably die if you, you know, didn't get more food. So nature was so serious about kind of its focus on preserving this energy that it created this thing called present bias. That is kind of universal behavioral bug or feature, actually, that made us survive through these times of famine and uh, uh, kind of lack of uh, or scarcity of energy. But now it becomes a bug because, you know, food comes in plates, massive plates three times a day. We continue consuming it, but, you know, we are not expending this energy and nature continues to push us into preserving energy. So we are ballooning, you know, we are not moving. And obesity is the third largest destroyer of value after cigarettes and wars, you know. Um, and unlike the first two, actually the trend is worsening. So while 
we as a humanity we actually realize the dangers and the issues with cigarettes and you know kind of uh, wars are clearly recognized mm. as as a problem obesity and or you know people being overweight continues to worsen so you know kind of when we realize that there is a universal behavioral bug uh, then we kind of thought hang on a second how can we tackle it and nature paves the way uh, because um, other than this there are other behaviors that are badly affected by present bias and one of them is procreation so nature had to figure out how to overcome its own behavioral feature called present bias and it had to invent things a uh, thing called instant gratification <laughs> dopamine loops yeah now nature went in a lot more kind of blunt way and it created an orgasm so orgasm is an instant gratification that ensures that procreation continues and um, you know, kind of dopamine and uh, um, uh, uh, what's the name? Serotonin. Yeah, um, Obviously, no, no. Only uh, if you're hugging oxy, the Molly. Uh, only if you, only if you no. hug afterwards. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the, the name escapes me right now. It will, it will come back. Uh, but you know, basically, nature failed to create an orgasm for exercise, and uh, in a way, this Endo- is the endorphins. Is that what you're? Yes, endorphins, exactly. Endorphins are very interesting uh, because they're so subtle and you actually need to be really clean in order to feel them. Mm. So if you're extremely unfit and, you know, if you're smoking or drinking or, you know, kind of live in an extremely polluted environment, when people start exercising, they think that this is going to make them feel good. Mm. But if you're really unfit, all you get for about three or four weeks is this feeling like, you know, am I the only one that, you know, kind of feels this miserable? You know, why is it in the movies they will smile after running and, mm-hmm. you know, I just want to vomit. And, uh, you know, it endorphins are too subtle for most people. And, um, you know, kind of they wouldn't qualify as an orgasm for, you know, kind of if we were getting endorphins for uh, procreation, I think that probably would be superseded by cockroaches, you know, millennia ago. So that's basically what we started kind of figuring out. How can we create instant gratification for exercise? And uh, kind of we quickly realized that marrying blockchain thinking um, with uh, kind of this motivation idea, uh, you know, would work extremely well. And that's how Sweatcoin was born. It's amazing because I remember being introduced to it in 2015, I want to say. I think I was one of the really early onboarders. I remember thinking, your steps and your movement just go to waste. If you walk around, nobody's counting them. Nobody cares that you walked uh, 10,000 steps. It means nothing unless it does. And as soon as you started being able to count them, and my loop in my brain was just, I'm taking my phone with me everywhere I go anyway. So if my phone's passively counting steps, I'd literally the equation says there is nothing to lose by having sweat coin because even if i did nothing with it for 10 years and then suddenly it was redeemable for two free drinks it's still better for the sake of you know how much does a charging your phone cost nothing yeah i remember just thinking it just it was so elemental because a step is just such a basic unit of human movement that once you start controlling that and incentivizing that it's incredibly powerful and we sort of skirted around explaining exactly what it is for the people who don't know. So perhaps you could just give us the, oh, yeah. the two-line explanation. So Sweatcoin um, is a digital currency. Um, we count steps. We verify them. There is a fairly draconian uh, verification algorithm uh, that uh, uh, 
filters out anything that is not 100% guaranteed to be genuine step. And uh, then we convert 1000 verified steps to one coin. So effectively, every step that you take uh, is uh, converting into a financial reward. Uh, so with sweat coins that you earn, um, you can uh, spend them with our vendor partners. And we have more than 300, probably by 400 companies now that we work with that accept sweat coins uh, for their goods, services or experiences, uh, gift cards. So, you know, in effect, what we do is, uh, as uh, Ed so eloquently sort of uh, said, uh, something that you do every day, we start converting it to a valuable asset. And while the initial feeling is, wow, you know, kind of just, you know, something that I do, this doesn't cost me much, why don't I do it? The reality is that once you start incentivizing and you have an idea in your mind, you actually walk more. So one of the kind of most powerful things that I'm really excited about is that we now have really robust set of statistics that shows that our users walk uh, between 10 and 20% more per day. And one of the most exciting things that I'm really, really kind of thrilled by, and this is a stat that uh, we received only sort of in the last couple of weeks, we're working with the University of Warwick that uh, uh, has done a fairly big study for us, or not for us, with us actually. And uh, uh, we now have statistics that shows that we make uh, people who are overweight or obese more active than we make kind of an average weight person. So we are actually influencing people that probably needed kind of this motivation, this help more than anyone else. Mm. So rather than making athletes that already run in the morning run more, which, you know, can okay but in terms of societal impact in terms of impact on that obesity problem that uh, uh, i mentioned before we're actually absolutely fair and square in the middle of it and we're really 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 making a dent in what we were hoping would be the impact of our business because our proclaimed goal is to make the world move more so it's not to convert i don't know trillions of steps or to have hundreds of millions of users you know, kind of, I would feel that we're doing something meaningful if we are making people more active on a daily basis, because that creates an immense amount of economic value for everybody. You raise the global baseline, and actually, if you're starting with the lowest common denominator, which it sounds like from the study that you are, actually, probably the 10% at the bottom will have a huge cost to the NHS in terms of treating them, because there's some really nasty health implications of not being more active. And I've noticed it makes me walk more. Sometimes I literally just see the bus and I just think, well, that's I'll, it. That's I'll just it. walk up the it's, hill it's today. The, Why not? It's when you're faced with that choice, suddenly you have you're empowered to make a decision that has a consequence. Gonna, is, yeah, yeah it's going to benefit you. Yeah, no, this is what we're seeing in uh, kind of in our user base that uh, um, in the morning, uh, you know, kind of people rush to their offices. Uh, you know, this is standard commute, uh, but especially in the afternoon when the pressure of the day is off. That's when we see a considerable change in uh, the amount of physical activity. So people skip the bus, as you just described, even though if you're in central London, actually walking is frequently getting you there faster <laughs> than being on the bus. Mm. You know, that's kind of my empirical uh, observation. Uh, people go for longer runs. People go for longer walks with their dogs. 
you know, we have uh, kind of groups of friends who basically determine who's going to be buying pints based on their position in the leaderboard. And there is, it just creates all this interesting and very kind of novel dynamics that make me kind of really excited. And as I mentioned, if that leads to, you know, people being more active by 20% on a daily basis, that has an immense amount of impact on that, you know, obesity trend and uh, on the cost base uh, of NHS in the UK in the long run. You'd also thought productivity levels, moods, so le- yeah, less tangible things. That yeah, there's a really interesting thing that happened, or with my behaviour on Sweatcoin as well, is you start to create, and this is something I've sort of done with my bank account as well. You either have a sort of credit mindset of you, you receive your income, you spend your income, but the more Sweatcoins I accumulate kind of the more selfish I've become about wanting to accumulate more sweatcoin. So in a way, the more of the saver's mindset I get, so I've stockpiled sweatcoin now, I've, I don't spend them, I just accumulate them for God knows what purpose that will arrive in the future. But then I am further incentivized to skip the bus, to keep walking, because the more I invest into accumulating sweatcoins, the more I want to, and that sounds... And it's nice because it's not fanatical. I sometimes, I've got a few friends who do CrossFit, and they check it, and they're like, yeah, yeah, 6 a.m., I'm going to go smash it, and then they end up sort of tearing a shoulder joint or something like that because they are doing sort of bonkers really high intensity exercise i f- i find the idea of just moving and i find when i go on holiday and i just walk around all day that can actually stay in quite good shape even if you're eating sort of you know, as you do on holiday just by staying active i think it's when you're behind a desk for nine hours a day not moving mm. that i find that you get quite um, unhealthy and then you go to the gym lift a load of weights and and think oh I've, i'm in good shape therefore that'll help and then you go up a flight of stairs and you're completely out of breath and what, what's the long-term vision <laughs> does it go does it go further than i mean it's already um yeah enormous doing some pretty impressive things can, can you take it any further do you have designs on that oh, absolutely uh you know as far as I'm concerned, this is uh, step one. So when we started the business, uh, the biggest question was, is there a need for it at large scale? And uh, kind of will the currency have value? Uh, So there is a resound answer yes on the first question because, you know, we already hit 11 million plus uh, installs. And um, uh, kind of last week we had four point something um, uh, million uh, users using us. Yesterday, uh, probably three and a half. Uh, so we're redoing our statistics, but you know, kind of this is ballpark numbers that we have. And uh, uh, clearly, there is a huge amount of uh, interest uh, among consumers as well as vendors and companies to actually accept sweatcoins and to provide good services to these audiences. So that kind of box, very, very ticked. The second question is, does this currency have value? Absolutely, because we already have sweatcoin um, exchange.com that somebody organized. We already have a lot of trading activity happening on Reddit and then Discord. And uh, uh, this is with us being centralized. We're not even on blockchain because when we originally sat down, we realized that, you know, we can build blockchain. It's going to take X amount of time, but it's, you know, it's not going to verify any hypothesis. You know, it's a technology that can underpin the transactions. And uh, kind of we said, oh, we're going to start centralized because this is faster. This way we're going to do an MVP in, you know, kind of a lot less time. And we went for it. 
So now we still need to turn it into a proper recognized currency. In order for that to happen, we need to put it on a blockchain or kind of some other um, kind of mechanism that allows, uh, you know, kind of public scrutiny and uh, kind of making sure that it's highly visible and we're not the only party that administers the whole thing. So that's huge next step for us. And uh, I'm spending an increasing amount of time on this right now. Do you mean by that? Do you mean um, it already exists as a barter ecosystem? Because I thought about that. Um, if somebody would buy my bike for a thousand sweat coin, I would probably sell it to them. So it kind of realized the value in my own head. But there's actually um, there was an offer on the sweat coin app for I think a thousand pounds of cash on PayPal for twenty thousand sweat coins. So that kind of anchored a value. But I suspect actually it's it's even more valuable than that. But so you're going to try and build out the off the barter ecosystem something more formalized uh, uh, this is this is another point that I haven't covered yet uh, but n no the first point is related to us really listing ourselves on exchanges so that it's not that you need to spend your sweat coins on stuff that is available in the marketplace be it companies that we work with or other individuals it is literally like you know kind of if you have crypto you go and you change it for other crypto units or you change it into fiat currency. Mm. This is what we want to achieve. We want Sweatcoin to be traded on exchanges and have market decide the value of it because you know kind of one of the most fascinating things uh, that don't know yet what it means but I know that it's hugely significant is if I talk to layman about cryptocurrency the biggest question that um, kind of people ask is why does it have any value? It's just a sequence of numbers. How how do you feel that with value? Why do people pay for it? Why does it grow or kind of decline in value? It's this zero to anything that seems to be an intellectual challenge for a lot of people. Now, in our case, I never ever had a question from anybody asking why does it have any value? Because if this sweat coin was generated by my steps, of course it has value. Mm -hmm. It's intuitively so obvious that, you know, we cross this barrier from zero to, you know, whatever the number by definition. And that makes it into a very interesting currency because there is never a conversation where does it have any value, but it's how much. And that is a perfect asset to put into the market and figure out what is it actually worth and who is going to be buying it. And we have really, really amazing kind of plans on uh, kind of our future monetary policy and how the currency is going to be unraveling in the long run. Unfortunately, I cannot talk about details because the, the you know, they kind of uh, been built out and analyzed. But, uh, you know, all I can say is that, you know, it, it makes me really, really excited mm -hmm. to so put us on blockchain, list us on exchanges and uh, kind of see where the world takes the value of one uh, sweat coin. You'll have to come back on in a couple of years and we can uh, revisit that. A lot sooner than that. A lot sooner. Yeah, no, we're, we're not, not going to be waiting for two years. Exciting. So phase two is potentially much bigger. B a lot bigger. Uh, because, you know, kind of, first of all, we know that we can go global and we raised money, we can do that. Second, we, you know, we know we can, uh, you know, we can put it on blockchain and effectively become listed and uh, as, as, as a listed currency, which means that, you know, if you're a person on the street and you're taking step, it's not that 
oh, every step generates some sweat coins and then I need to, you know, kind of go and select what I actually want to spend them on. Yeah, some more sweaty betty leggings or something. And you actually going to, you know, kind of, it, it's, it's a very, very simple and very powerful thing that every step that you take generates some financial reward that you will be able to convert in whatever currency you want and spend on anything that you want. And I know that that is going to have a big profound effect on also the motivation of people to move and that's going to result in people becoming a lot more active and that opens a whole raft of conversations and applications that I am personally extremely excited about like I believe that every country would need to accept part of their taxes and sweat coins because that means that the person is really thinking about their body their health and they are actually minimizing the cost of, you know, healthcare, of, uh, I don't know, kind of increasing productivity for the UK PLC or for any other country where we'll be operating. So these are the real kind of applications that make me kind of go, wow, this, you know, this, this is where the real potential is. And uh, what you mentioned about the marketplace and making sure that, you know, people can sell uh, stuff for sweat coins. You know that will you know that is part of our roadmap def definitely uh and uh you know this is going to be happening perhaps in parallel with the blockchain uh so that's any anyone selling rather than just the the vendors yes right a bit like a like sort of gumtree marketplace yeah we already have you know kind of more than fifty thousand people have uh, volunteered stuff to sell so we are receiving dozens if not hundreds of uh, offers and products per day we're just trying to figure out what is the way to really kind of put them in front of uh, people how do we curate it because you know you don't want to have anything illegal in there you don't want to have anything you know mm. it just raises quite a lot of questions that we could not deal with when we were 10 people so now we nearly doubled in size and people are getting up to speed so we can start tackling bigger bigger things like this yeah it's very difficult i think um when instagram opened up a shopping thing people were using it to to sell drugs which is a something that you perhaps don't expect when you open a marketplace Maybe you do, I don't know the, i guess you get an economy where you have net producers and net recipients and i thought about this with sweatcoin of there will be a health bill to fit to foot sorry for being unhealthy and if you are a net producer of sweatcoin therefore seem to be a healthy non-burdensome member of the economy uh, the idea that you could trade that if somebody then needs to go and draw on their health premium or something like that and i can say you've just been hit with it's particularly in america where the private healthcare sector um i know some people who've had you know have six sixty thousand dollars to $100,000 worth of work, and you could then trade in Sweatcoin for you know them to see their hospital bills paid off in a not so egregious way. Um, you can see how it's quite interesting in terms of it evening out the kind of peaks and troughs in society of basically making sure there's a slightly more uh, appropriate welfare system. Yeah, there'll be a, a Black Mirror episode uh, where you can't get health insurance because you haven't got enough sweat coin. <laughs> yeah, denied. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I deliberately haven't watched that one uh, because uh, I just don't want it uh, to get into my head because people were kind of saying, ooh, you know, this leads into these uh, places. You know, like, you know, if you let people or some information into your mind, it starts to shape things. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to do a lot of paragliding and... Uh, um, kind of you learn very quickly one thing uh, you fly wherever you look 
So if there is a single tree in the landing field, it's astonishing how many people land on it because they look at it, trying to avoid it. But the motorics of the body and kind of everything is leading to exactly opposite. Right. So if there is an idea that you're trying to avoid, last thing that you do is you kind of focus on it yeah, as, it's, as it's a focus, point that you're trying to avoid. Focal dystopia, is that what they call it? When yeah. you basically focus on something and then it, it magnifies it. Um, is that something you've kind of got into your mind from years sort of spent studying psychology and, and sociology and stuff like that in terms of are you very aware of how you curate your own mind space when thinking about i landed on that tree you landed on that tree. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds excruciating and it, hurt, and it hurt and it hurt my ego and uh and your legs <laughs> and uh, i kind of i really thought about it so you know i wish i could say that no i read it in books and that you know i landed <laughs> some of the best lessons are learned that way though yeah. aren't they it's like you don't do it you don't do it twice the university of hard knocks what you seem to tap into that i really like is the same thing the bag the plastic bag tariff tapped into which is that these small changes but brought in to influence people um because I'm, I'm quite big into the idea that a lot of people are complaining about the cards were dealt by um central government big decisions but i think there's got to be a slight movement especially with technology to individualism which is that there is an individual accountability on on mass that if you don't pick up a plastic bag anymore then if seven million people a day decide that five p is too much and they don't want to pick up a plastic bag anymore then seven million plastic bags are not put into circulation and i think the same the same basic process still goes for sweat coin and i think the most interesting startups at the moment are kind of dealing with those first principles and addressing people and the small psychological hacks at a very basic level i find it almost interesting that people bring up black mirror around you because there's a really noble crusade here actually which is that you are you're really everything can be turned into something negative so i totally understand why they do it uh, i guess i just told the story to to explain why i haven't watched it it was a deliberate decision because uh uh, yeah, I just thought that this is not the type of info I would like to have. But it's good that you mentioned nudging, uh, because we know now that, uh, um, you know, kind of drastic changes in one's lifestyle are, you know, very, very hard to sustain and very, very few people are able to do it or they happen in an extremely kind of... Um, stressful and extremely challenging moments of one's life uh, you know when when you can really change behavior you know people quit smoking when they have a terrible diagnosis or um, you know let's not go into some negatives the point uh, the point is that nudging is something that works and uh, it's a fairly kind of well established in psychology concept but this is something that is starting to be used um, in in so many ways in the UK for example tax bill has uh, gone up tremendously when uh, David Cameron established a nudge unit and the first task of nudge unit was to figure out how through letters and usage of text you can increase people's payment of tax on time and uh, they ended up achieving more than 200 million increase uh, pounds uh, per year in collections because because of texts that they were using and they were using this kind of tiny little behavioral change uh, insights that they were literally putting into those same letters that were reminding people that it's about time to pay tax that's so interesting when you look at the influence of social media at the moment which is quite topical 
and the idea that you're infiltrated by what you see on a daily basis. And that's another reason why I came off Facebook is because I felt that it nudged me every single morning into a sort of thought spiral that I didn't necessarily want to begin. That it would be quite interesting if they actually took some pride or agency over the idea that, yeah, they should really be showing you what you want to discover in your friends, but they could use that influence to positively nudge you, you know, into, into, I guess, aggregate more positive behaviours. Yeah. And I think that's something maybe they're not addressing at the moment, which I think they should and or could be, uh, and that may get the sort of monkey off their back is that I think they're sort of just bombarding us with news. And before you know it, you're kind of saturated. You don't remember any of it. And it'd be quite nice if... Yeah, the problem is their KPI is just eyes on their site, time on their site. Yeah. And they've worked out that outrage clicks is... Uh, is is how they how they do that, and so they ha- they're not incentivized to to hook people in a way that's going to um, have a beneficial effect on on their life, like Bitcoin yep. and uh, and Headspace and you know technology like that, which is using the same um, psychological hooks and triggers, but trying to promote the bel- the well being of the individual. Fa- as you say, Facebook and Instagram haven't got that far. They've got to the addictive hook stage, but not to the promoting well being of the individual. Would you do that with Sweatcoin? Because one thing I like about Sweatcoin is it doesn't necessarily probe too much into me as an individual. It didn't ask me my body weight, my body type. It wasn't. It didn't come across as a fitness app in the sense that, it's, oh, who are you? Um, you can look like this. It didn't create sort of an envy. It was just like your very personal journey to go and accumulate Sweatcoin. Only you're monitoring it or, yeah. or your friends if you choose to follow them. Do you see a, a vehicle for incentivizing people more? Like if you sat there and you looked at all the data and go, people are super active, but they're not as active as maybe they could be at 6.30 p.m. You know, we could probably get a few more people walking or the government says, you know, hey, could you help people walk? And you could go, you know, earn 1.2 surge price sweat coin for walking at these peak times. Or is that not something that you guys would ever go down? You know, uh, the 1.2 will definitely not happen because, uh, uh, you know, we're a currency. And one of the uh, main things that... Uh, you know, kind of, it, it needs to be very simple, very clear, very transparent rules as to how is currency generated. So, if you pay different amounts of currency, um, you know, depending on the time of the day, you're already sort of creating. It's a bit of a game. It's a bit, you know, at best, it's sort of loyalty points. Right. We want, you know, kind of people to. It's, it's a simple thing. Thousand steps equals one sweat coin. No matter where, no matter how, no matter when, no matter what incline, if you're running or if you're walking, it's always the same. But coming back to your question, yes, I think that uh, um, kind of I would not be against you know kind of doing something. You know, let me give you an example. Uh, we already mentioned buses, and there are a lot of people, especially in Zone One in London, that would take a tube journey covering one stop. Now, we know that the time to go in and go down into the train, wait for it, and then emerge on the other side is actually shorter, sorry, longer than if you were to walk. Mm. Now, I feel that it would be totally amazing to point it out to people and actually make them feel you get there faster, you earn your sweat coins, what's not to like because quite a lot of people do it automatically because this is not a consideration that emerged in their life before we have a tool and a mechanism that is perfectly positioned to start doing these things in addition that will also sort out the congestion that tfl is experiencing um you know in rush hour 
it's incredible how many people cannot get on the train. So, you know, there are so many positive things that we can bring to society and to individuals by really kind of thinking about those slots in the day, particular occasions, and how this can enhance the, you know, kind of life of everybody. It's not to say that, you know, kind of we, in in some nasty way, will kind of extract something from uh, from people. As far as I'm concerned, making people more physically active and them expanding energy is a good thing, no matter what mm. sort mm. of time of the day. That's a very interesting point because it's going to take me to another topic, which is your growth. And I haven't, and correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't seen you advertise on the tube. No, Which would be quite haven't. interesting because when somebody's pressed against the door looking up and thinking like, oh crap, I could have just walked and earned some sweat coin. Might be quite nice, but that's not the way you've We've gone. We've spent zero on marketing because Which is, yeah, we, yeah, my past experience is marketing. And uh, um, I think that it's for a lot of products uh, that I've seen, it's a trap. Um, I think the most important uh, thing that you can do as a business, as a startup, is really perfect your product. Because if you put all the money or, you know, bulk of your money into the product, you will really be genuinely solving the problem of your customers. And then they will be the engine of growth for you. They will be doing your marketing for you. Yes, you can do a bit of nudging here and there. But, you know, kind of when people splash in early days of their existence money on marketing, you know, I always look at it right now and I am qualified to say because I've done shed loads of marketing is that, you know, you really need to be starting to do that when you really, really, really know hand on heart that you have an amazing product market fit mm. and it's just about igniting the fire. If you constantly need to spend money on marketing to kind of get those users then you know perhaps you need to be thinking about your viral loop your product value the you know kind of how you communicate the value to people how you incentivize them to potentially you know talk about you there are lots of things that you can do in the product that will take care of your growth and your marketing would you suggest that paying for users creates so let's say the, a bloom user versus a sweatcoin user do you think it creates a flakier cohort of users in your opinion Flake here. Um, no, I think that what, what I would say is if you invest money into the product, this is like, you know, having a perpetual marketing. While if you're spending money on marketing, you acquire that user, the money is spent, the money is gone. So, you know, kind of if I have a chocolate, for example, and I'm really busy perfecting that formula that makes people go, hmm, and they rave about it. That's going to work with every new customer and every new customer will make that hmm sound and there will be another new customer. Now, if I invested that money into marketing to make one person just make a hmm sound and somebody else heard them and they tasted it and it didn't really kind of make them do that, that's it. The, the chain reaction stopped. So products are able to create chain reaction. Marketing might accelerate it, but marketing cannot create chain reactions and you're I'm, I'm willing to be persuaded otherwise so if somebody's got sort of experiences and examples that do but fundamentally it's product that creates gravity uh, or that that pulls people in that really keeps them in marketing is just a communicator of it and you know kind of potentially throws the net wider
well, 10 million users in, in three months, four months, whatever it is, says that you're, you're not wrong, you um, still, at least from your own perspective. I was going to say, are you still on that user J-curve or where did it start to get quite steep? And was that just the compound percentage growth, e.g. you get 20% per month and now you have 20 million or 10 million users, yeah. so an extra 2 million uh, joins? Or was there a particular turning point where you saw uh, a notable uptick? Um, no, there are, you know, as ever, you never, I, I've never seen anything that is really, really gradual, uh, unless it's a huge business and you're already operating in mass market and everything is, you know, kind of uh, tiny little swings and changes. Uh, so in our case, it was December, January, um, especially January. January is a perfect time for kind of our message for uh, people pay attention after Christmas and New Year's binges uh, to kind of what they eat, how they move. This is the time when people go and get their gym memberships just to be abandoned by the end of January, early February. And uh, kind of our uh, product perfectly fits into the mindset in that time of uh, the year. Plus, we have a really, really cool viral loop. So if somebody is interested in uh, uh, kind of thinking how to grow, you know, go and download our app and check how, you know, easy or kind of what calls to action we use to make sure that you, after installing our app, feel um, kind of compelled to share and to talk about it with the, uh, with your friends and family. So this is basically what started happening that, uh, you know, kind of our viral loop went uh, into overdrive. Um, also, few really, really influential uh, people in social media picked it up because, you know, unlike probably some other products that you know kind of people share, we uh, we feel that we uh, we're not taking your social capital away. You know, sometimes people send me you should you should try this uh, product and that product gives you financial reward if uh, somebody joins. Okay, it's fair enough, but. You know, typically you need to go through a few hoops and, you know, it almost feels like you're doing a favor to someone when uh, when this happens. In our case, it's completely different because people kind of go, wow, this is almost magical. I'm converting my steps into value. Oh, I know a couple of people that would benefit from it. And typically it's kind of friends, family and somebody who they feel they need to be more physically active. Mm -hmm. And you feel that this is a relevant product that you're recommending that the person will not receive as like yeah, you know and they're probably paying him uh but you know this is kind of genuine recommendation so it works in both ways and yes we do reward every successful invite with five sweat coins so kind of it works for everybody with sweat coin does it want to be the a coin that can be used for almost everything or do you see it um existing within a sort of a more health fitness slant or do you think it could be used ubiquitously? And is that the... You know, this is a hard question. I um, Blue sky thinking compels me to kind of engage. However, um, kind of my focus and my pragmatism tells me that there is a huge amount of work, use cases that need to be tackled in relation to physical activity and just you know kind of our bodies and um, you know if we can become a default currency of economy of movement and everyone moves you know uh, i'd be very happy where it will go beyond that 
um, you can I I I I I, I can't say. Uh, I have a feeling that by default this can go into the area of carbon footprint because when you move rather than kind of taking a car or taking a bus you do reduce your carbon footprint but these are already kind of edge cases that might materialize and might become important but at this stage is all about making people more physically active because as I mentioned there are three issues in the world that destroy the most value uh, it's cigarettes wars and obesity or uh, you know lack of movement and in terms of i guess i've got a couple of um segues uh i wanted to find out because you're a blue sky thinker and you're you, you know you, you've got a potentially very exciting proposition um are there any other areas of technology that you look at now with a bit of envy that really excite you let's say it's uh, elon musk talking about trips to mars or e electric vehicles like is there any parts that you go oh those are exciting um i think because i have kids i'm really really um interested in education and patterns of education and figuring out how to um, find out very quickly um, how to teach people how different people different sort of skills and knowledge because uh, everyone is extremely um, extremely different and requires very very different approach and we still have kind of schools with classes and everyone goes through same paces and uh, you know there are there is an exam and you know there is this kind of gateways and a levels o levels gcse's and um yeah i have a feeling that you know can if we're building the world for the future which is what we do um education and customization of education and figuring out how to make kids excited interested engaged and really passionate about kind of consuming absorbing absorbing this knowledge um you know kind of if if i wasn't doing sweatcoin that would be something that i would be kind of spending time on that's one. Um, I think there are some sort of specific technologies that uh, uh, really kind of fascinate me. Um, you know, self-driving cars, of course, and the implications of it. And, uh, um, you know, kind of my commute is nearly two hours one way. Um, so I'm really interested in uh, kind of people and ideas, how to shorten that, how to, you know, hyperloop. How do you automate mm -hmm. the whole thing? How do you remove strikes that, you know, I live on Southern, that is an absolute nightmare the for worst. me. The worst. Southern Rail um, is terrible. So how can you automate the darn thing um, kind of out of the whole system of uh, commute? Or how can you develop these uh, vehicles that, uh, you know, kind of you wouldn't have to drive so that I would be able to jump in? And even if it is two hours, I actually productively spend them on something as opposed to kind of jump from one train to another in Clapham Junction and you know kind of in, in crowded tunnels so that's uh, another area and um, you know I'm also I, I, I wish I had better education I'm you know kind of right now uh, with advent of blockchain and uh, I don't know zero knowledge proofs I'm kind of just thinking, Jesus, you know, if I could go back and uh, can really properly study uh, math and uh, kind of cryptography, uh, this is something that I would definitely be spending 
a lot of time on because it's fascinating implications the zero knowledge proofs and exchange of evidence that something is there without actually sharing what it is and uh, kind of lots of use cases that it can power so yeah sorry can I, you just can, I, can, I can rant uh, about that for, for forever <laughs> just a, qu a quick sentence on what a zero knowledge proof is to a layman just <laughs> or, or is that not is that not doing well? Why? Is, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I, I inserted this probably more to because uh, this is something that I've only started digging into. Uh, zero knowledge proof is is effectively is effectively technology that uh, not technology. It's it's more of a, a math based approach that allows you to, uh, for example, confirm that you have enough money in your bank account for certain transaction without revealing that you know how much exactly you have in the bank account and um, you know kind of it, it is fascinating because uh, it sort of changes quite a lot of rules of engagement and enables a lot of use cases that um, I thought you know kind of were undreamable and uh, this is something that just hit me very, you know, I've heard of them already sort of a year ago, but it's only recently that I started uh, really digging into it because, uh, I mean, the implications are uh, very, very profound. And, you know, kind of, um, we, you know, kind of, we're even toying or I'm toying with the idea, you know, kind of, you know, is this something that we can potentially use in uh, Sweatcoin? And I think... Ollie, maybe you want to dig into some of the uh, entrepreneurial health routines of Ole. Well, yeah, Ed mentioned that um, you've done lots of silent retreats. Yeah. Is that something that's in informed your entrepreneurial life? No, that was uh, one of the things that I had to try in order to close the chapter of Bloom. Right. So a coping. Yeah, it was a coping mechanism because, you know, as you can imagine, there is a lot of, noise grief and uh, kind of pressure and uh, uh, silent retreats was my way of uh, potentially distancing myself from all of this stuff without going into the mountains which is the way i used to deal with this uh, you know going to the mountains is three to four weeks um, kind of exercise uh, but kind of in my experience, it achieves very similar results to me. Well, it's it achieves a lot better result because uh, you not just silence your mind, but uh, you also become kind of fit as a fiddle and can run without breathing for a heck of a long time. Because if you at altitude for a week or two, it's amazing what it does to your level of fitness. But it's also because you're very high, the oxygen is sparse and your body is really, really good at shutting down everything unnecessary. So when you walk here on the street, for example, your my mind would be kind of, do you remember that? And, you know, yeah, I need to do this. Monkey and then you mind. the phone, yeah, mm. and, you know, you send an email, you send a text message or you, you make a call. There you don't have any of those dialogues because, uh, you know, if you need to put, foot forward that's where you know kind of all the effort goes and you take three breaths and you take a step and there are no thoughts that cross your mind and i found that you know kind of extremely helpful uh, so vipassana is uh, silent retreat is uh, something that was getting me close to that i've done two of those how long were they for 
10 days each. Ten days. Um, I would definitely recommend everyone to do one. I tried to do a second one f- probably six months or seven months after the first one, and I realized that uh, that's exactly opposite of what I should have done. They serve a purpose, they open y- you to kind of, they, they give you the result, but trying to do too much of anything is a bad thing. So until there is a real need, I probably will not be taking kind of uh, vipassana um, anytime soon. But did you have previous meditation experience? No. And do you well, me- uh, sort of. I was, I meditated enough to think that I will never be able to meditate. Right. So you don't meditate now. Uh, I do, but very irregularly. Thankfully, through vipassana, I can actually. Uh, meditate and most importantly you know if anyone is interested uh, kind of one of the biggest issues I had with meditation is I was thinking that you need to have silent mind Mm. when you meditate Uh, and what Vipassana taught me is that no the whole purpose of meditation is not to have a silent mind but to actually allow all of these things to go through be conscious and just remove them let them play out and disappear because until everything that is kind of um that creates this cognitive dissonance in you plays out it's very very hard to be silent Mm. so if you try to silent your mind you effectively just suppress stuff and maybe you can keep it for a period of time but then it will still explode and it will take over so now when i meditate it's you know i can do pretty much anywhere and just kind of letting stuff out and through to make sure that it plays out and disappears and doesn't bother me again there's a, a book called the master and the emissary and it says we expend now with our enlarged prefrontal cortex a lot of our energy suppressing thoughts and parts of our brain so i i think even just allowing yourself to experience those i find that um my way of achieving that balance between not being bored by meditation and doing it is trying to do coordinated exercise Mm. maybe trying to do you know trying to teach myself handstands or something that involves the left hand side of my body and i can get wrapped up enough in that 40 minutes can go by and all i've been thinking about is that one thing and that's quite cathartic start climbing mountains you know, above six thousand meters, so about <laughs> above eighteen thousand. It's a bouldering wall in, this, in Parsons in Green, this tiny little island. We don't have any mountains. <laughs> you, can, you can climb a six-meter bouldering wall in Parsons Green um, <laughs> Estate, as it were. Um, it might be a good time for Ollie to lead into the dose. I would say. Yeah. So I, d- I don't think you had a chance to look at this before, but we like to get your wisdom, get the wisdom of our guests that we can pass on to to the many entrepreneurs that we hope are listening. So do you have a, a startup related or entrepreneurship related book that you'd recommend? To my absolute shame, um, and my co-founders would testify, I am kind of, I'm not 80-20 guy, unfortunately, I'm kind of 100-0. Um, so uh, I have been reading very little. The reason for it is that I just find it difficult to, I know that I should, but <laughs> I'm uh, if I go into something until I sort it out, you know that's that that, that occupies my complete fo- uh, field of vision, and uh, but probably the most uh, kind of influential and uh, important book that uh, that still influences me would be from Zero to One, mm. the Peter Thiel one. Yeah, mm. uh, it's um, I don't know, you know, kind of when I when I read it, uh, I still have a feeling that it probably 
I, I'm not sure if it needs to be a bug because you know, kind of, the, the the idea is kind of reasonably straightforward. But I think that it's very, very important of you know, kind of, to keep that in mind when you start building something, you know, from very, very kind of early early stage yeah it should just be a blog post I find with a lot of those American self-help books the premise is is laid out very clearly and and understandably in the, the, the preface yeah. and then they have to write the rest of the book to satisfy the publishers I remember seeing what? him deliver the um a seminar for that actually I went and sat uh, and Peter Thiel was up front and that was quite nice because he was delivering the the message of the book so that got done in five minutes as you say and then actually people were were asking him questions and bringing him to the front foot as how he sort of basically how he thinks because I think that's the premise of the book is it's a very Peter Thiel uh, like viewpoint on the world and I think he's a pretty interesting guy whether you like him or not is um, up yeah. to personal preference but um, seeing him in that live environment where where he could be sort of knocked off his party line where the book just takes you on a journey uh, questions got him to to respond with his viewpoint and he's a, kind of reminds me a little bit of Sam Harris in terms of they're very analytical and, and specific in the way they behave i don't necessarily think they're politically aligned no but, I imagine they're quite no. Different. but uh you know can i also took bait of your question i suppose i'll i'll definitely come back to books but uh i'll probably when i finally kind of force myself to actually unplug at least for a few hours a day i'd probably be reading fiction because i find that uh, uh in order to um solve a problem um sometimes you really need to look in the opposite direction and uh, kind of reading uh, something totally and entirely unrelated some somehow in the past has uh, given me kind of completely unexpected lateral kind of thoughts and ideas uh, i don't know like uh, bridging um, blockchain and uh, loyalty scheme for sport uh, that resulted in sweatcoin but what I do in terms of uh, s kind of helpful stuff as an entrepreneur is that I really focus on specific questions that I have. And there is so much stuff out there right now that, you know, asking the right question and looking for the right blog post or looking for a specific name. So rather than reading a book, um, I find myself uh, reading, you know, kind of, if you want to be au fait with the uh, crypto and what's happening there, it's about white papers. Um, I find myself scanning through quite a lot of them. Um, if it is about solving specific business problem, it is reading quite a lot of snippets of information that kind of various people would, uh, uh, would put as blog posts uh, or even podcasts and uh, kind of triangulating them and trying to get sort of ideas out of it reasonably quickly. So, you know, kind of... Um, Do you use Quora? I used to. I think that uh, I find... Um, what do I use? It's all about people asking about what they do if they think they have a really high IQ now. I find a bump <laughs> into people going, if my IQ is 150, how do I sort of relate to normal people? <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, you know, I, I, it's very, very lame an answer. I just basically experiment with search queries on uh, Google. And uh, um, I used to uh, read a lot of stuff. Now I'm realizing that, you know, kind of, I know sufficient enough or sorry, I have sufficient enough experience to, on the first three or four sentences, to understand if the way this person delivers information is for me and I can engage with it. 
and then I give it a chance. Right. But if it's written in some form that, you know, that jars with me and mm-hmm. makes me kind of uncomfortable or, you know, kind of I don't necessarily follow, then it's just discarded. So it's just a lot of uh, sources that then I triangulate and uh, sort of take an action. It's fairly trivial thing, but gives pretty good, I would say, um, result in uh, kind of in my experience. Gotta know what you like. But maybe and we also have this founders uh, network. It's very useful. Add, uh, uh, so I, you know, kind of in the past, I threw some of the questions uh, into the network, but I've also discovered that some of the stuff that we do is also pretty, you know, not to sound arrogant, but pretty cutting edge. And uh, some of the problems that uh, kind of we're solving um, there are no tools, so uh, you know, kind of. I read and I researched and I spoken to people and I asked plenty of people around and I realized that, you know, kind of nobody is yet has found an answer. So we, you know, kind of we're building some of the answers ourselves. It's it, it's quite an interesting thing about the human condition. There is maybe we are meant to operate in uh, contrast and in sprints. So maybe your time of reflection was your time of reflection. You ingested experience. And then simply when you're building the company, all you need to focus on is expending that. And if you need to sort of get to a point where you need to readdress it again, then maybe you stop, focus on that, ingest more content experience, whatever it might be, and then pull it back in and sprint again. Because um, you're right, sometimes yeah. I find myself reading a book and I'm I'm utterly distracted. Um, also give a shout out to Dan Murray for Founders. As Absolutely. He's curated that. And what's quite interesting about that is it's probably a good testimony for the uh, collective intelligence or hive mind but I do think in some senses when I see um, contributions you have to make for instance some of the questions around hyperscaling I think um, a lot of the founders would like to have had the same problems but I don't (laughs) think anybody's quite dealing with the same level of sort of skyrocketing you are so in that sense you are alone and we all try and learn from you retrospectively because I know that it's not necessarily that straightforward yeah um I guess one of the last things we were going to ask for uh, to wrap it up is if there is anything anybody listening to this podcast can do to help you on your crusade, whether that be downloading the app, sharing the app or, or something kind of more than that, uh, what would be useful for anybody listening to this podcast to do to help you on your journey? I, well, it's, it's, it, it is an interesting question. Definitely install the app. And uh, given that our mission is to make the world more active, what I am really interested is uh, kind of throw throw your ideas as to kind of what can we do to, um, in a in a very intelligent way, uh, nudge people towards being more active through use of our app. Um, if you have any ideas as to kind of what blockchain tech we should use. So one of the challenges that we encountered, we're already processing about 300 transactions per second at peak. That is 15 times the theoretical limit of Ethereum and 40 times the theoretical limit of Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, kind of just simply using existing proven blockchain solutions is not something that uh, uh, we can rely on. So if there is a um, kind of high throughput blockchain tech that you know works you know give me a shout i'd absolutely love to dig into it and uh, uh spend some time understanding uh, its applicability to us what's the best way for people to reach you i well you know find me on facebook facebook yeah uh, LinkedIn, twitter 
Yeah, uh, Sweatcoin on Twitter. You know the you know, Sweat if, Nation. If, if 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 you look if 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 you'll you find me, you you'll, yeah, yeah. you'll, you'll find me. It, you know, I'm not trying to hide. And actually, to to lobby uh, and shame, lobby and shame. <laughs> Are there any countries that you found that will not get off their sofa to start earning Sweatcoin? They're being particularly resistant to downloading the app. No, there are, uh, you know, I can tell you that we have dozens and we now have hundreds of thousands of uh, people that ask us when we're coming to their country. Um, so it's actually our own decision. We're only in the UK, US and Ireland right now. We oh, haven't wow. launched anywhere else for reasons of having to control our growth because uh, for a number of months, our phones were ringing 24-7 because we had... Uh, you know, this issue, that issue, uh, you know. I guess uh, Android territories as well are probably yeah. more complicated than iOS heavy. Yeah, no, uh, you know, we, we have both iOS and Android, but uh, the issue that we had was, uh, you know, when you build a startup, you build it for sort of 10 people. And, you know, kind of when we we're building our back end, uh, we said, well, theoretical limit was uh, 100. Uh, thousand, and uh, we're right now 10 million plus without you know, kind of um, fundamentally changing uh, the architecture. So when you scale this fast, things break. And thankfully, we, we have a, an amazing team that was able to effectively rebuild the house while it was falling and <laughs> on fire. Uh, but God, it wasn't fun. And, uh, you know, kind of, again, these, th those were the times when I was asking sort of people questions around. And, uh, you know, most people say that these are good problems to have, but they're still problems. You still kill your business. Yeah. Maybe you can create your own like sort of AWS for hyperscale apps that be super low cost, quick and robust, and then maybe your own blockchain on the back of it. Who knows? If you ever experience it, then just know that you have to go through it because if you were building to scale, then you probably never see scale. Um, so if you you know it's a blessing to all of a sudden you know build something that scales fast just you know go through the pains and be ready for it and really it's exciting to exciting stuff to be doing uh it's scary and you know kind of you think that you're going to be dead in the evening and you know it's sometimes it's pure adrenaline but it's uh because when you scale you know, people come out of woodwork and uh, kind of amazing advice will hit you uh, when you really, really need it. But uh, kind of fundamentally, we were also very, very lucky because we have uh, an amazing team. Um, you know, Igor Khmelov, who is our CTO, and I'll also name check uh, Alex Gusev, who is our backend uh, kind of developer who almost single-handedly, you know, carried this smoldering and you know kind of crumbling uh back end into a state that it is now which is totally amazing well we're very excited to see where it goes one final yeah. prediction um how many users do you reckon you'll you could get to within the next 18 months so now we are really kind of shifting goalposts for us so it's about daily active walking users so what matters to us are the people that um, you know kind of every day clock some sweat coins some steps and uh, kind of right now we are at about three and a half uh, million 
So I think that we we should minimum treble. Um, I'm hoping uh, to to get to about 15 million by the end of the year. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating. And we will catch up with you when you enter the trillions of steps, which will no doubt be beyond the solar system as we know it. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Oleg. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, oliored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.